At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, friends, when we even talk about connecting with others and proclaiming the gospel, we're really talking about connecting for the gospel as a church family. And connecting for the gospel is something we've been talking about all month long here at Wildwood as we have been in Philippians chapter 1. And so far in this series, we have seen how we can connect for the gospel by praying for one another. And then last week we saw how we can connect for the gospel by rejoicing together in the advancement of the gospel regardless of our circumstances. Today we're going to wrap up this short series from Philippians 1 by talking about how we can also connect for the gospel by standing together in the face of opposition. So we're going to see that today by looking at Philippians chapter 1 verses 27 to 30. But before we look at those verses together, I wanted to just reflect with y'all for a moment about something I've had the privilege of doing a few times in my life, and that is float the Arkansas River in Colorado through some class three and class four rapids. If you've ever been whitewater rafting, would you just kind of wave at me? Many of you all, some world travelers here among us, some adventurous people here. Um, But, you know, I'd always heard people talk about whitewater rafting, and I thought, boy, this would be really fun to do at some point. But I, I always had some challenges, and one of them was I had no idea how to whitewater raft. That's a challenge. And that's coupled with the challenge that I don't swim very well. And, you know, it is on water. So those two things had kind of kept me away, but I'd heard about it enough and had an opportunity where my friends were inviting me to join them and participate. And so my family, along with a number of other families, go whitewater rafting in Colorado. So we, before we get on the river, they give you a tutorial. And so I go to this lesson, and because of my fears and because of my lack of experience, I pay extra close attention this presentation. I mean, I am not necessarily writing things down, but I'm writing them down in my heart, not on a tablet. They're going straight internal. I want to make sure I get it right. And when I left there, I put on a life jacket and I strapped it on so tight before I ever got on that boat. But then this amazing thing happened. I get on the boat and I float down the river. Now I got wet. We all got wet, but it was the good kind of wet. Not the flip over, upside down, nearly drown kind of wet. The get splashed as the water bounces over the edge of the boat kind of wet. The reason why you go out on the water. And in that moment, uh, this amazing thing happened. Suddenly I began to gain confidence in whitewater rafting. Or rather, in another sense, I, I began to lose confidence in the severity of the river. So the next time I go whitewater rafting... I don't listen quite as close to the instructions and the training that is given because I suddenly have minimized the risk that is found out on the water. And the next time I went, I paid attention even less. Now, I know what you're thinking. What you're thinking is that this story that I'm sharing is going to end with me upside down in the river or trapped in a beaver dam. But you'd be wrong. It hasn't happened yet. But if I keep going and I keep getting on that river, eventually something could happen. And the reason why is because the river is always dangerous. Class four, class five, class three rapids are nothing to be taken lightly. But my experience on the river that first time might have lulled me into a false sense of confidence, both in my abilities 
to navigate as well as in the tameness of the river. Now, friends, I I tell you that story today, not just to talk about whitewater rafting, but to talk about something very important related to the Christian life. Today, friends, we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture that talks about the persecution of Christians. And as I talk about the subject of persecution, uh, we are tempted to tune out because we don't think that it's a real possibility for you and I. I mean, if we've been around the church for a while, we have probably heard several messages about opposition to Jesus or persecution of the church. And yet, let's be honest, the majority of our lives have not been experienced going through a lot of those things. And we can begin to think that we are just somehow able to navigate without opposition or that the river of this age is not all that dangerous. But here's the thing. We actually are always navigating this world, which is class four and class five opposition to Jesus. What did the world do with Jesus? They killed him. Who are we following? Jesus. Has the world changed? Not in the heart. Therefore, the dangers of this world and the dangers of this age are very much still a part of the river that we float on. And when you think about what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not some, but all. Paul understood that the current of this age was wanting to sweep us into the rocks. And that current still exists even today. And so, friends, as we gather today as followers of Christ, we need to heed passages like Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 to 30, not as something for someone else, but as a word of warning for us. The wise person, before they get on the Arkansas River, listens to the safety presentation, respecting the power of the river that they float on. And friends, the wise Christian will listen to passages like Philippians 1, 27 through 30, understanding and remembering the difficulties and the challenges and the opposition that awaits us in this life. This morning, we're going to look at Philippians 1, 27 through 30, and in these four verses, we're going to see two things that will help us understand how we can connect for the gospel together by standing firm in the face of opposition. I want to read these verses for us, and then we'll back up and make some sense of them in two points today. Philippians 1, verse 27 begins, and Paul writes and says, "'Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents.'" This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. Now, friends, in these four verses, we're going to see two things today that are important for us as we think about connecting for the gospel. The first of those things we're going to see is this, that we have an opportunity to stand firm together, to stand firm together. Now, we see that in verses 27 and 28. 
And it's important for us to, to understand the context of these verses so that we appropriately apply them. You see, throughout chapter 1, as Paul begins his letter to the Philippians, he takes a very encouraging tone. You know, everything he talks about is things that are going pretty well. He's like, hey, I'm in Rome, you're in Philippi, but guess what? We're still on the same team, and I'm praying for you, and you're praying for me. And then he, he goes on and he says, and, and guess what? You and I, even though I'm in Rome and, and, and you're in Philippi and, and I'm imprisoned and all this stuff, guess what? We can still celebrate. We can still rejoice over the same things because the gospel is still advancing. And then he goes on in some verses that we've skipped in this series because I preached them back on June the 14th. If you want to go back and listen to that message, you can But in verses 19 through 26, he basically says, and I'm confident, friends, that I'm going to get out of prison, Paul says, and when I get out of prison, I'm going to go back to Philippi, and we're going to have some more time together because I think there's more ministry the Lord wants to do through me in your lives. So, so far in the first 26 verses, there's all kinds of encouragement, all kinds of positivity. But when we get to verse 27, Paul begins with this little word, only. And it's, as, it's almost as if this is what he's saying. He says, hey, everything's going really well, exciting. The Lord is doing things. But it's like Paul gets to this point. He says, but there's something I'm concerned about. There's, there's one thing, only one thing that I want to make sure that you know is a danger for you, Philippians. And what is that? Well, it was the danger that they might not stand firm in the face of opposition. But how does, he, how does he explain that? Well, he begins by talking about their lives being worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, what is going on as Paul says that? Well, it's important for us to understand that, you know, manner of life is, is actually one word in the original language. And it's the word from which we would get the word, like, be a citizen. It, literally the same root as the word that we get our root for politics. Paul writes and he says, Philippians, I want you to remember your citizenship and live as a good citizen. Now, for the Philippians, this would have been a very appropriate analogy because the Philippians were very proud of their citizenship. Let's just think for a moment about Philippi. Philippi was all the way over here. Rome was all the way over here. But there's something important for us to remember about the city of Philippi. Acts 16.12 tells us that Philippi was a Roman colony. Here's what that meant in the minds of the Roman Empire. It wasn't just some conquered land. It was Rome's land. So that when they were standing here in Philippi, though 800 miles separated them from Rome, they would say, we're standing on Roman soil. And not only are we standing on Roman soil, but we as citizens of the city of Philippi are Roman citizens. And not only are we just Roman citizens, but that means that we get to operate with all the blessings of being a Roman citizen and underneath Roman law and practicing Roman customs and speaking Roman language. See, it was a big deal to be a citizen of a city like Philippi because even though they were all the way over here, they considered themselves to be fully Roman. To say it another way, Philippi was a little piece of Rome a long ways from home, right? 
that rhymes in English. I don't think it rhymed in Greek, but just go with me for a minute on that, all right? So let, let's think about that. That's, that was kind of the mentality of that age. Now, Paul seizes upon that perspective and experience they have to basically say this to them. Hey, Philippians, you are far more than just citizens of Rome. But I want you to remember that because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are citizens of heaven. And so when you live your lives on this earth, you are standing on Jesus' soil. And as people changed by the gospel and people who follow Christ, that you might live according to his law and his custom and according to his ethic and by his word. Friends, Paul writes and he says, I want you to remember that this world does not define you, Philippians, but you are defined by your connection to the God who created you through the work of Jesus Christ, through the gospel. And so live a life that is worthy. Live a life that is connected. And friends, if you and I are are connected to Christ as well, if we have trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, the same thing could be said of us. Our primary appeal is not being an American citizen. It is not being an Oklahoman or a Normanite. But our primary appeal is not even to be a Sooner. But our primary appeal, if we know Christ, is that our citizenship is in heaven. It is Jesus who defines our life. It is Jesus who defines our direction. And Paul writes and says, I want you to live your life remembering that connection. I want you to live your life exemplifying that connection. And the reason why he has to make that determination, the reason why he has to make that statement is because there was opposition in the world. There was struggle that people were going through because of the opposition that was found to Christ, was being experienced by Christ's followers. And so Paul writes, and after he tells them to let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel, he says that when he goes and sees them or he hears about their lives and ministry, he says, I want to make sure that at that point you will be standing firm in one spirit and with one mind. In other words, the opposition that is coming in this world, Paul says, I don't want you to give up on Christ as that opposition comes. I want you to hold the line. I don't want you to retreat away from the Word of God and what God says is true, but I want you to hold the line, Paul says. This word stand firm was a, a military word. It was used of troops who would not give up their post even when there was intense fighting in front of them. How would troops hold the line when the opposition was coming? Well, they would hold it by staying together, linking their shields so that they might be able to defend against the approach of an enemy army. Paul writes and he's concerned that they would stand firm and he knows that part of what will allow them to stand firm is if they remember to stay with one mind and one spirit, that they remain connected in unity with one another. Throughout Paul's letter to the Philippians, he's, he's really, you know, almost obsessed with their unity. In, in, in the Greek language, you could take this little prefix of S-U-N, and you could place that prefix in front of another word, and it makes it an intense community experience, a unifying experience. Paul uses phrases like that in Philippians 16 times because he knows that part of their ability to stand firm in the face of opposition will be found in their willingness to stay together. And as they stay together with their shields linked, 
looking out at the world that is opposing them, they also are to strive together. They're to strive together, side by side, for the faith of the gospel. Well, what does he mean by striving together? Well, that word to strive alongside or to strive side by side, that's the word from which we get our word athletics. Basically, he's saying is come together and hold the line of faith, hold the line of truth. But as you do that, I want you to compete against the common enemy. Don't spend your time fighting each other, Paul says, but spend your energy and effort looking out over the shield of faith, shining the light of Christ into a dark world that the gospel might advance. He invites them to strive together for the gospel. This idea of striving together for the gospel is echoed in in the, the book of Jude in his little letter in the third verse when he talks about contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Paul, Jude, and and even us today, we understand that there is a a body of faith, a a belief, an identity in who Jesus is that has been delivered to us, and and we are to not deviate from that, not back away from it, not shy away from it, but we're to hold firm on that line and link arms together around the person of Christ, looking out over our shield of faith into the world. And instead of fighting one another, we are to strive together, side by side, for the advancement of the gospel. Friends, this is what we're called to do. It's interesting that he unites them together in that line and he invites them to be of one mind and one spirit. Basically what he's saying is don't spend your time and your energy fighting one another. Spend your time and your energy fighting against the true opponent, the true opposition, Satan and the influence of the age, the influence of the world. To spend your energy shining there, focusing there. Keep your shields facing out. Don't turn sideways so that you could poke each other in the side, but look over the shield of faith and continue to strive for the advancement of the gospel. Well, if the church doesn't run away at the face of opposition, what happens? If the church is not frightened as the world tries to persecute it, where does that leave the world? Well, it leaves the world a failure in their effort to thwart the church. What's the worst thing that the world could do to the church from their perspective? To kill us. Guess where we go if we know Jesus and we die? With Jesus. And the message continues to advance even here. And so when believers don't turn and run in the face of opposition in this world, They are revealing the destruction of the world, at the same time reminding each other of the salvation that we have in Christ and our identity that is found in Him. And all of that, the strength for that, the hope for that, the life and the vitality for that are found in God Himself. Now, friends, when we think about this this notion or this idea of standing firm together, I just wanted to ask you for a moment, do do you think that this is something that is relevant for our lives today? I mean, does this feel like it's, it's hitting on a topic that is pertinent to our lives? I don't know about you, but for me, this topic has never been more pertinent. I was listening to the radio on the way in today, and the topic of conversation was, 
How can a person of faith hold a public office? There was a time within my lifetime, and I don't feel like I'm that old, where participating in a religious experience of some kind actually was a qualifier of public service, added credibility for public service. And today it's considered something that would eliminate someone from public service. Friends, we, we're on class four rapids. We're on class five rapids, and the world wants to intimidate us away from Christ. May we not be frightened, but may we stand together. And may we truly stand together. Because right now, friends, there has never been another time in my life, I'll say there's a lot of nevers and things, and maybe it's just recency bias, but I don't remember a time in my life where there were more things seeking to divide even Christians. There's a lot of stuff out there right now seeking to divide us. It's an election year that ever divided believers. I hear that it has. I hear that it can. There's a debate raging about race and the expression of that in society today. Has that ever caused any divisions or conversations, even inside of the church? And then there's a virus. I don't know if you've heard. This COVID-19 thing is happening. People have opinions about that, if you didn't know, and it can seek to divide people as well. And so, friends, right now we we live in an era where there's a lot of things that cause us to want to take our shields and turn from facing out to the world and shining the light of Christ, want to turn and start fighting each other. Let's poke each other in the ribs with the backside, the blunt end of our sword, instead of looking over our shield of faith and shining the light of Christ into the darkness. Friends, the, the world desperately needs the light of Christ right now. The world needs to hear the words of the Lord even when they oppose it, to be reminded of its truth. The world needs to be reminded that human life matters and it should be protected from the moment of conception all the way to death. Friends, we know that because we're created in the image of God, so every life has dignity and value. And even if that idea is opposed, we should not shy away from proclaiming its reality. We should be people who understand that there's one race of humans, the human race, right? Go back far enough, we're all sons and daughters of Noah. You know, it'll take you a minute, but but just think about it, right? Our great-great-great-great-grandpa came off of that ark, And so when we think about the connection that we have, we're from the same stuff. We're created in the same image. That's why it's wrong for anyone to be discriminated against based on the color of their skin or their ethnic background. We as a church need to proclaim that message. We need to proclaim that gender is not just a choice that people make, but it's something that is given out of the sovereignty of God that not any expression of love or sexuality is appropriate, but only those that are demonstrated inside of the direction that God has given us from His Word. And friends, even beyond that, we need to always remember that Jesus is the only way of salvation. There's not a number of different ways up that mountain, but there's only, it's only through Christ. And so we need to hold fast the line and proclaim that message to shine that light. Friends, we live in a day and an age where all of those statements I just gave that are, that are 
included inside of our understanding of the world and the universe inside the gospel of Christ. Those are things that this world will oppose. Maybe not everyone, all of them, but many of them, some of them, right? So there are, there's opposition that is real and that is in the world around us. And we need to stop poking each other in the side and start contending for the gospel together and shining the light of Christ out into our community and into the world. You know, I, when I was at OU, I, I had the opportunity to play a lot of intramurals, a lot of intramural basketball I was played. You know what intramurals means? Intramurals means I'm playing a game that only matters to me. That's what intramurals means. When I was playing those intramural basketball games, uh, if I had ever gotten a call from then OU coach Kelvin Sampson at that time and said, Mark, we need you, I would have left even if it was mid-game and driven to Lloyd Noble and got a, gone to play because I would have stepped into the varsity game. Friends, when we think about our situation right now, it's as if Paul is reminding us, don't spend your time intramurally jabbing each other in the side with the blunt end of your sword. Instead, look over the shield of faith and shine the light of Christ in the darkness because that's where the real opponent is found. Friends, will we stand firm together for the gospel? It's the first thing that we see. But the second thing that we see is, is equally important, and that is this, that we are to suffer persecution together, not just to stand firm together, but to suffer persecution together. And again, friends, it should not surprise us that followers of Jesus would be persecuted because Jesus himself was persecuted. He was insulted, he was beaten, and he was crucified. Now, Praise the Lord, he was resurrected from the dead, which provides us the ultimate hope in the face of persecution. But if Jesus was treated that way and we are following Jesus, why would we expect that we would be treated any differently? Following Christ ultimately will lead to opposition. If we get on the river enough times, eventually the boat might be on the verge of flipping Gordon Fee makes this statement. He says, one of the reasons most of us in the West do not know more about the content of verses 29 and 30 where persecution is talked about is that we have so poorly heeded the exhortation that precedes it. In other words, we don't have to go looking for trouble, but if, if we are regularly standing firm with Christ, eventually we will be opposed by the world that killed him. But what's fascinating is just... The fact that so often we are surprised by persecution, aren't we? We're surprised by it. We should not be surprised by persecution. We can grieve persecution, but we should not be surprised by it. When believers around the world today are imprisoned because of their faith in Christ, we, we should not be surprised. We can grieve with them, but we should not be surprised. When believers are killed because of their faith in Christ, we should not be surprised. We, we can be grieved with them and with their families, but we should not be surprised. When believers around the world have their businesses taken from them because of their faith in Christ, we should not be surprised. We can grieve with them and we can even support them in different ways, but we should not be surprised. And when somebody looks crossways at you across the Thanksgiving table because of your faith in Christ or thinks that you're a little crazy for how you're going to spend your summer or next year, we should not be surprised. We should not be surprised. We can grieve and we can relate together, but we should not be surprised. Instead, we need to learn to embrace persecution for what it is. 
Paul tells us what it is in verse 29. He begins, he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul says, I was persecuted when I first went to your town. I'm being persecuted now. And guess what? You're getting ready to be persecuted as well. But this is what he says about it. He says, it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ. You know what this word granted means? The the original word that was used there? Gifted. Paul says, you've been given a gift. And that is the gift of persecution. Now, when some of us hear that, we wonder what the return policy is on that gift. Is it 14-day, 21-day? I just want to know. It's just the way that we think about life, right? But when we think about life that way, we're forgetting that there are gifts embedded inside of being opposed for the sake of Christ. Well, what are those gifts? The first gift that we are reminded of in the Scripture is the gift of fellowship with Jesus. Fellowship with Jesus, it's a gift. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings or may have fellowship with his sufferings. Paul knew that when he was experiencing persecution for the name of Christ, that ultimately that was persecution that was directed towards Jesus, but that Paul was experiencing so that he might have fellowship with Jesus in the midst of that persecution. Now, why would Paul think that persecution of Christians was ultimately persecution of Christ? Well, it goes all the way back to what Paul heard from Jesus himself. Remember, Paul was not always named Paul. He went by Saul early in his life, and he wasn't a Jesus follower. He was a Jesus persecutor. He was rounding up Christians for arrest or death. And Paul was headed towards the city of Damascus when Jesus appeared to him in front of him. And he says to him, Saul, Saul, why do you, can anybody finish that sentence? Persecute who? Me. Jesus said, why do you persecute me? Paul was not directly persecuting Jesus, at least from his perspective. He was rounding up Jesus' followers. But Jesus told him, when you persecute them for my name, you are persecuting me. And so Paul remembers that there is a fellowship and an intimacy that comes with God, a dignity that comes about this. When we suffer for the name of Christ, we are suffering for the name of Christ. And there is no other name so worthy to be connected to. There's a fellowship that comes with Jesus in the midst of this. But not only that, there's a fertilizer for growth that comes in the midst of this. James and Peter both knew this. James, the brother of Jesus, said, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. When we go through persecution, God is developing us spiritually. Peter said, We are grieved at this time by various trials so that the tested genuineness of our faith may grow and develop. Friends, God is developing our faith in the midst of persecution. It's a gift that he gives to us. Now, thankfully, it's not the only way that God can grow our faith. It's not the only way that he can grow our lives, but it is a way that he grows our lives, and it's often a way that he grows it the most. Again, we should not be surprised when we experience persecution for the name of Christ because Christ himself was persecuted. And sometimes we think, if, well, if I'm persecuted for Christ, that, 
that sounds unfair. Why would I be persecuted because of him? Well, think about what else is not fair. Though if we are attached to Christ, we may be persecuted for a time and for a season here. But guess what is found for us in eternity? Because of him and because of our connection to him, we are rewarded forever. So a momentary light affliction, even persecution, even persecution that leads to martyrdom is nothing compared to an eternity in the presence of God. Therefore, friends, as followers of Jesus, we are reminded and we are challenged that we can suffer persecution together. And in this way, we can connect for the gospel. Will we connect that way, friends, as a church family? Will we pray for one another? Will we rejoice together as the gospel advances? And will we stand firm even in the face of opposition? Friends, we can. We've been designed for this, and God has given us the empowerment for this in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for today and the opportunity to be together and to look at your word. I pray thanking you for your instruction that reminds us of the opposition that is in this world and the the challenges that await us. And Father, so many times we have been lulled into a false sense of security, thinking that these verses must be talking about someone else. But Father, as we look down the river in this current age, we see the rapids coming. And we pray that you would give us the faith and the strength to stand firm and to suffer together to the glory of your name. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.